Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Telly McGehe, who serves as co-interim VP for University Advancement and interim president of the Georgia State University Foundation. And in his spare time, when he's non-interim, also serves as associate vice president for University Advancement at Georgia State. Welcome, Telly. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for getting all of those titles out correctly. <laughs> well, don't ask me to do it again. I'll keep it uh, briefer on the wrap up, but I am excited to get to know you a better, uh, get to know you better. For those uh, who are maybe catching this on YouTube, you're staring at uh, a beautiful background uh, in, in uh, through Telly's office window, which I understand is uh, student uh, housing right there in what part of Atlanta? Tell us more downtown about Atlanta. Atlanta. Georgia State University is downtown Atlanta. <laughs> and I recently flew through Atlanta Airport, have, have connected through there a couple of times recently. And, and the brand presence is impressive. You really get to see the uh -huh. student story and the student impact. And I know that a lot of those kind of ad campaigns typically are more uh, enrollment oriented, but it makes me wonder how many proud alumni are, are, are catching uh, that that brand uh, presence as well, uh, even if that isn't the primary objective. Oh yeah, they certainly are. I mean, we we get stories and we get feedback all the time where our alumni are reaching out to us because they love seeing that airport terminal and they come through there with all of the bright blue pictures of Pounce, the mascot with our, our president and our students. And um, it's definitely raised the the profile, I think. It's amazing. You must be getting, you know, selfies and, and tweets and- oh. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I it's funny for me because I work here, but whenever I fly through, I always see people doing that, wanting to take pictures with the cutouts and with the the, the panels on the walls. It's great to see it. I love it. Well, let's let's learn more about your background and history. And as I do for all of my guests, I love learning more about uh, the higher education journeys that that we all experience. And so, take me back to to Kentucky. Where specifically were you during high school? Let's say. And what led you to the University of Louisville? What was that telly like? Yeah, so I actually grew up at the time, it was a really rural part of Kentucky, but today it's more suburbanized. And it's uh, the, the town I grew up in is Brooks. It doesn't even have a, a traffic light there. It's a very small town, kind of up in the hills a bit. Um, at the time when I was a kid, it was about 40 minutes south of Louisville, Kentucky, which is the big city that people know because of the horse races and all that stuff. Um, but now it's about a 20 minute drive because I-65 comes through there and we have an exit ramp now in my town. Um, so yeah, I grew up in Bullitt County, Kentucky. I uh, went to Bullitt Central High School, which was one of three. Um, my high school was the largest and it was kind of the catch-all. It, it, you know, we had two other high schools. One was in the northern part of the county, one was in the eastern, and Bullet Central got everybody else from the western part and the southern part. Um, very rural, got water from a, a spring house and then graduated to a cistern. So it really was country living. I grew up in a, in a log cabin. Uh, I was the first in my family that was actually a uh, first generation high school graduate because neither one of my parents had graduated from high school. My dad actually dropped out to join the Marine Corps during uh, the Vietnam War. And my mom grew up in um, the inner city. She actually grew up in Louisville, uh, but had dropped out to help raise money and help support her mom, who was working three jobs. But my parents, you know, despite that, they really had a, a value on education. They knew what it meant for people, and they knew how it could change your lives. 
And in fact, my mother, even though she had dropped out of school, um, her mother, my grandmother worked three jobs to put them all through private school in Louisville. Um, so they grew up with the value of education. And for me as a little kid, it was never a question of, are you going to go to college? It was, what college are you going to go to and what do you want to study? And although my parents could never, you know, help me navigate that process, um, it was still an expectation that they had. So I started looking at different colleges. I really did not know what I was doing. Um, I remember the first time I had to fill out the FAFSA. I went to my parents and said, I need to have your tax information for this. And my mom was very defensive and said, who wants to see it? And I said, well, it's for the, the government so I can apply for uh, student loans. I probably didn't even understand that that's what it was for at that point. I was so in the dark on it. And my mom's response was, no, we don't need anybody knowing our personal business. So they weren't going to do it. I had to sneak into the room with like a flashlight one night and take out their tax returns. And actually, I remember doing the the FAFSA on the, the floor as quick as I could before they noticed and putting it back in there, um, which is kind of a funny story. But they, you know, overall, they were really supportive of it. They just didn't know what they didn't know. And uh, I ended up at the University of Louisville because it was the closest one for me. I actually started my first year at a two-year college because my parents, they knew that they could pay for a semester there, maybe two. My brother was coming up behind me. So they're thinking long-term, like he's going to go to college too. So we're going to have to pay for two and how we split this up and make it fair. My brother ended up going into the Marine Corps. So it freed up some of that money for me and it helped me to go right into the University of Louisville the following year. So... I went in there. I did my um, English degree. Kelly, Kelly, let me just say that yeah. that's such an inspiring story. And it's just it's just um, thank you for sharing, because it would be, you know, I, I could see not everybody being comfortable sharing and and clearly uh, having that kind of um, both both the frugality of the upbringing, but also the expectation that education would be a part of the future. Uh, that higher education would be, uh, you know, uh, there for you is is really amazing. It, it resonates. It resonates for me with with my personal um, story as as well. And and I also just have to ask: Were there other, I don't know, teachers in your in your high school or or other maybe even classmates or classmates' parents that you were able to to brainstorm in any of this with, or or were you really kind of just figuring it out on your own? Um, kind of figured out on my own, really. But the the good thing I think about people in the area that I grew up, they're very resourceful. And so they'll find a way to make things work. Um, and I was fortunate that I was able to take some college credit classes in high school. I took uh, AP physics, an English class. I think there was a chemistry class that I took. And that put me in an environment where there were other people who knew um, what they were doing. And so I was able to kind of glean from them in, in some regards. Um, I did have two great high school teachers that really made an impression on me um, in different capacities, I think. Um, one of them, her name was Bonnie Adams, and she was actually from here in Georgia and wanted nothing more for me than for me to go to Georgia Tech. Um, and I did, despite doing well in like the physics and chemistry classes that I took with her, I was horrible at math. And so I just, you know, I didn't see that as a path and financially it wasn't possible anyways, but she really um, kind of coached me through the process and helped me understand that there was a FAFSA. Uh, she referred me to the school counselors who were helpful to an extent. Um, the other teacher that I had, her name was Monica Smith, and she was actually my French teacher for all four years 
of high school. But what she taught me was that there is a bigger world out there. And that was something that my dad from being in the Marine Corps, he always tried to instill that in us as well. But uh, Miss Smith, you know, her whole thing was studying foreign languages and traveling abroad. And she had done those things and she had been a, an exchange student in Montpellier, France. And that's ultimately where I ended up going as well for my exchange program. So there were great teachers and there were great friends that helped me to to figure things out. And my family, you know, not college educated, didn't graduate from high school, but they were smart enough to kind of point me in the right direction when they could. And all those things together helped make it a successful journey. For I me. love it. So was the, the French exchange program during college then? It was. Yeah, it was. And I don't, you know, I have no idea why I started studying French. I remember in elementary school, I had a, you know, we had a library day and I went and that was the book that I found. And I was fascinated by this other language and tried to, you know, it's funny nowadays people do it with Duolingo and all these other things, but I was really trying to teach myself a foreign language from a book without any kind of teacher guide me through it. But I stuck with it. So in you know, high school, I took four years of it. It ended up being my minor in college. I almost have a bachelor's degree in French. I, I took so many classes. I think I was like one class away, but it just wasn't going to be an off, offered in time for me to do that. Um, so I have a, a high minor degree, I guess I could say. Um, but the, yeah, the Montpellier, France is a sister city for Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, so, yeah, it was a work exchange program. Uh, it was a rigorous program. You had to apply for it. You had to do a language test to get in. So I did all those things. I got accepted. Um, there were probably about 20 of us that went over there from other universities as well, not just Louisville. Um, I got some scholarship money, made it happen, went over there, spent the entire summer of 1996 working for the mayor's office. And the best part about it is that I got to actually work for the World Cup because France hosted the World Cup in 1997. And so I got to do some of the, the groundwork to help them be the host city for that. Mostly with the work that I did was meeting different soccer teams that would come over who maybe couldn't speak French, but they could speak English. And so I served as a translator. I met the Russian team, the Japanese team, uh, several others. And it was just a, it was a great experience to be immersed yeah, I mean, in culture. That's like, that's like the coolest college job of all time. <laughs> it really was, you know, and there were, I got the, one of the best jobs because a lot of the folks that were over there, you know, some of them were working in cafeterias and hospitals and things like that. So I don't know how it worked out that they picked me, but I was glad that that was the one I landed in. And so Montpellier is sort of, uh, let's call it a coastal town, almost looks like barrier islands there. Mm -hmm. And this is a kid from a cabin in Brooks, Kentucky, right. who's <laughs> as a global translator for elite soccer players. I mean, mm -hmm. had you traveled internationally much prior to that? Or? No, I mean, um, as a... As a kid, my parents would always pile us in the car and go somewhere. Um, we did drive up to Canada one time, but that was the extent of it. Um, never internationally. So that was the first trip I ever took uh, by myself. Landed in Paris. Half the struggle was, you know, getting to Montpellier. I took the TGV, which is the fast train. Um, I think it took me like maybe two or three hours to get down there. And otherwise, you know, it could take you a whole day to get that far. Um, but it's this old college town. It dates back to the medieval ages. It's in southern France. Like you said, it's not too far from the Mediterranean. In fact, they have ferries that will take you over to Morocco. Um, very different from where I grew up. Absolutely. It's a very diverse city. 
Um, in some ways, it's kind of like the crossroads of the Mediterranean. So there were a lot of people that were coming in from Spain and from Italy. Um, I made sure that I took the time to see the rest of France while I was there too. So I really tried to get out and experience all the different cultures. Amazing. My wife and I just took a 15th wedding anniversary trip to France. It was our first time there this summer. So I was just looking at the Google map, retracing RTGV train stops. And, uh, uh, but, but to imagine that, you know, at that juncture in your life is just, it's, it's the kind of experience that uh, obviously it's had a huge impact on you, but uh, it's the kind of thing that just higher education uh, does so well for so many people. And it's, it's sometimes frustrating when there's so much, um, you know, negativity or, or negative press around higher ed uh-huh. I spend my day talking to folks like you who have such transformational experiences. It's, it's, it feels at odds with what that overall narrative uh, is. And so tell me just more about, I mean, I, I did language classes in college. What I love about language cl- classes is you are more inclined to talk to your fellow classmates than just about any other class, right? Where you're not you being, <laughs> you like literally have to meet your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, it, it's funny to think back. I mean, it's been over 20 years for me uh, since those classes, but I still remember some of those people the best from college. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right. And, and also, you know, I was an English major too. And so you're also required to do a lot of communication in there with your colleagues when you're talking about literature that you're reading and, and you know, doing the Socratic method back and forth with the professor and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you're right. It, it definitely does. It helps you to build relationships. There's certainly value there. It, it helps to, you know, if you're maybe somebody who leans towards being an introvert, it helps pull you out of that a bit. And I, I think gives you some of the experiences that you need to perfect your social skills and your interactions. And certainly traveling abroad does that. I mean, to be immersed in a, a completely different culture and, you know, know very little about it really and have to survive on your own. You know, I remember they didn't give us any money working there until the very end of the trip. And I remember at one point calling my parents and asking for some money and I'm probably making my mom sound like a rough person, but she just, <laughs> she was a little rough, but in a good way. And she said, no, you wanted to go and have this experience. So you should do it and like embrace every bit of it. And so, you know, I just, I made it work and and got through it. Um, but those are the kinds of things that it teaches you how to do, uh, to live on your own, to be independent and to be resourceful. It's great skill sets to have, I think. Amazing. No doubt. So you're studying English and French. Mm-hmm. You are navigating the college experience, and uh, while the global translator for elite soccer player sounds like a very cool summer experience, doesn't necessarily lead to a full-time entry-level uh, role at a college, uh, per se. Uh, and so how are you sort of shaping the next step as you go through college, and at what point did... Uh, continuing education and 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 pursuing your master's uh, when was that spark lit yeah well I think I quickly realized as I was coming towards the end of my um, undergraduate degree program that I was going to have to go back to school to do something that could help me get a job I just didn't feel like an English degree was going to help me do that Um, in fact it's been more helpful than I ever probably gave it credit for um, but so I started to immediately think about what I could do in a master's program. And therefore, while I actually did consider going into um, a master's for an English degree and then pursuing that all the way to the doctorate level, 
And in fact, I got accepted into the University of New Orleans and was going to go there and focus on Southern literature and was very excited about it. I'd been to New Orleans before. I loved it. Um, but my better sense got a hold of me and said, Telly, you're not going to study in New Orleans. You're going to have a really good time down there. So I started thinking, you know, I got to come up with a plan B, um, looked at other options, and I found Northern Kentucky University, and they had a, a master's degree in public administration. And the interesting thing is that it, in college, I always worked while I was a, a full-time student. Um, random jobs, I, I worked as a hotel clerk at one place. I worked for the newspaper and the classified ads department. So I did all these kind of different wild jobs. But I also had worked with a nonprofit organization in Louisville, Kentucky, that works with adolescent females who are being taken from their home for abuse or for whatever other reason. Some of them uh, were being brought in because they'd done some type of petty crime or something. So they were in the custody of the Department of Juvenile Justice in Kentucky. And I found that work to be really rewarding. It was tough, but I enjoyed it. And I felt like there was value in that work and that you were helping to build up a community and help people improve their lives. And so when I started thinking about that and how happy I was doing that type of work, that got me thinking, is there a degree out there for something like this? And that's how I found out about the, you know, at the time I feel like it was kind of a new field, but the master's in public administration. And so I went into that and I focused on nonprofit management. And one of the first jobs that I had was working in community development. I did an internship for a city just outside of Cincinnati, Ohio, and then bounce from that to a, another position. And that's where I really started to do some of the fundraising work for the first time. Um, a lot of it was grant writing. Some of it was state. There was some federal money. I kind of got my baptism by fire with the federal stuff because it's so complex. But I enjoy like, figuring out how to work through the mechanisms of federal funding and working on the programmatic side with people to make sure that the deliverables that you had promised, you know, you've committed to that, making sure that you're following through, that it's getting done. And from there, once I graduated with that master's degree, I didn't necessarily want to stay in Cincinnati and started looking at other opportunities. And I ended up moving out to Baltimore, where I worked with an organization called Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services. So it kind of brought me back to my interests in uh, the global world, international affairs and that sort of thing. And what I did there was it was fundraising, but it was only on the government grant side, mostly I'd say probably 98% of it was federal. There was some state money. Um, it was really rewarding work. I got to work with a lot of the organizations that we were partnering with throughout the country to provide services to refugees. But I realized after about two and a half years of doing that, it starts to get repetitive. And you're kind of caught in a cycle if you're doing the, the grant writing bit. Well, it was a big move. I mean, was it, was it a difficult move? You've been really you'd grown up in the sort of Louisville, Cincinnati corridor, if you will, uh, going to France was a big, uh -huh. big for sure. But, uh, you know, and then doing the masters in Northern Kentucky and then deciding to move to the East coast is, I mean, you make it sound pretty simple, but that's, that's a big move. <laughs> there were nuances to it for sure. Um, I know when I, I first moved to uh, Baltimore, I was in one of their farmer's markets and I tried to order biscuits and gravy for breakfast. And the lady said, where do you think we are? We don't have time for that. Get in the back of the line and you better come up here and know what you want. <laughs> and I was traumatized, but you know, that's just how they are on the, the East coast. They're, they're a little more direct. Uh, I've, uh, I, shared this <laughs> I grew up on a farm in Iowa and was a first generation college student at Brown. And my, my roommate, my first year was from the Philadelphia area. And 
we both coincidentally played football. It wasn't typical for football players to be paired up with, with each other. It just was sort of the luck of the draw. But after about a week, we finished orientation, kind of those initial activities. And at one point he goes, dude, you got to stop saying hi to people you don't know. <laughs> and uh, so that was my version of your farmer's market uh, vibe for sure. Yeah, I had that similar situation too, where somebody had said, quit smiling at people you don't know, they're going to think you're crazy. So <laughs> very similar experience there. But, you know, it, I was always intrigued by big cities. I remember, you know, both of my parents worked for Louisville Gas and Electric, which is the utility company in Louisville. And I remember sometimes going into the city with them and just being mesmerized by the big buildings and how wide the Ohio River was and the massive amounts of people. It's just, I really enjoyed it. And so being in a, a big city like Baltimore and also spent some time in DC, just for me, it was really energizing. And I got caught up in that. And, you know, it, it was a great experience for me in my early, mid, late 20s, um, and even early 30s in the district to be there and to have that experience. Um, I found it really rewarding. So it kind of motivated me, I think, to throw myself into my work and to build the relationships that you need to be successful. Um, I would say that, you know, after about two and a half years, it kind of gets repetitive on the governmental grant side. And so I decided that I wanted to do more work with individuals. And so I got hired on at the Boys and Girls Clubs of Greater Washington in DC, which at the time was the largest affiliate for Boys and Girls Clubs of America. And that footprint for that place, you know, it went from Fredericksburg, Maryland, all the way out to the Chesapeake Bay, almost up to Baltimore, and then all the way down to Frederick, Virginia. So it covers a massive amount of area, but it gave me the opportunity to work. I did a little bit more with, with state funding. Um, so it broadened that a bit. I started working more with foundations, but I really started to work with individuals. And that for me is when it really started to click because I thought, you know, foundations are great, government, they're okay. But to work with people who are actually giving away their own money and who are passionate and who want to have an impact on these young kids' lives, it, for me, it was just, it was really rewarding. I thought, how can I turn this into a job and make this kind of thing work? Any specific donor conversations, don't need to name names, but when you think about just like really high impact memories that you have during that time that that helped you really solidify this as a career path, do, do, do any specific conversations stand out? Yeah, absolutely. I, I had a conversation with a lady who was really interested in, particularly in the district, trying to improve the educational outcomes for boys and girls in, in D.C. in areas that were being underserved. So predominantly Southeast D.C. at the time. Um, I'm not sure how it's changed, that the, the demographics have shifted since I left. Um, but that was really where she wanted to have her impact. And she had spent her life in the educational sector. She had always worked there and she just felt like there needed to be more that was done, particularly in these clubs where the kids were coming after school to really help them to finish their homework when they got in there, to help them study, to help them focus on what they wanted to do next in their own lives at this young age. And she ended up making a, I mean, it, it probably took us a year and a half to get there, but she ended up making a $15 million gift and invested in educational programs in the clubs that we had within the District of Columbia. And I remember going back to her probably two years later to report on the outcomes. And it was phenomenal what she had been able to achieve. But that was one of the first conversations I had. And I just remember thinking, you know, this lady, she could do whatever she wanted with this $15 million. She could 
move to France if she wanted, but she's doing this because she cares about it and she wants to have an impact on these young people's lives and make sure that whatever barrier, what was really important for her, whatever barriers were there for them to become successful adults, she wanted to try to remove that. And education, she thought, was one of the big ones. And so for me, that was just, that lit a fire. And I thought, this is great. And I had another friend who I knew out in D.C. He was actually doing this kind of work. And he said, oh, yeah, Telly, you can make it a career. They're called major gift officers. And so that was the first time I ever heard of it referred to that. I started looking at at opportunities to do that and uh, kind of followed my path and created my own opportunities to get where I am. Um, I ended up moving back to Cincinnati to be closer to my parents who were still a little at the time, but my mom's health had started to decline. I knew I wanted to be closer um, there in case I was needed also to help my dad. And I found a position that was in healthcare, worked with people with disabilities from um, you know infants all the way to senior citizens. They had job training programs, daycares, educational programs, all sorts of things to run the gamut of somebody's life. And it was a perfect fit for me because it gave me a broader perspective of advancement and development because I had a marketing team that I was managing, a volunteer organizer. Uh, There was a donor database that I was working with for the first time in my career, um, an annual campaign person that I was managing. And then I saw that role. I was a chief development officer there. And I saw that role as finally my opportunity to really try to do some major gift fundraising on my own. And I'll never forget the executive director that we had at the time. She she was a phenomenal grant writer and they had done a a capital campaign probably two years before I got there. And she had raised almost all this money from corporations and foundations, which is just unheard of. And and I can't remember how much the, the campaign was. It wasn't a big one, but the fact that she had gotten all this money through grant writing was impressive. But she came over to my office one day and she said, Telly, I don't know what to do. We have to have dental services for our clients, but I can't write any grants because we're in this holding pattern now because of the capital campaign. So many people gave us money. We're not allowed to apply for two, three, four, five years. I don't know what to do. How can we raise this money? And I said, well, why don't I just pick up the phone and call Mr. So-and-so and and have a conversation with them? And the look on her face, she was appalled. And she said, why would you call a donor and tell them that? <laughs> and I said, oh, because, you know, they're giving a, a significant gift every year to the annual campaign. I think they'll consider it. You know, we can have them come in. We can talk to them about the needs and, and see where they land. And she was so reluctant to do it because she just felt it was inappropriate to ask somebody for money that was already supporting your organization. But when we did it and it was successful, they ended up paying for the entire like dental van to come out and everything and renewed it for like three years. And she just came over to my office at UNH, and she's like, Tell you, I can't believe you thought of that. And so I didn't think of it. It's a real thing. Like people do this. <laughs> but she was just amazed that it that it worked. And that got me to the point where she was going to be retiring. And she said, Tell you, I want you to think about, you know, coming into the CEO role. Um, I had served as an interim CEO when she was out for a while. She would take like a month-long vacation and go to Costa Rica and they'd have to have somebody else in that seat. So I was doing that kind of work. And I remember thinking, you know, I could go down this path now and become a CEO, or I could really just try to really try my hand at this major gift fundraising and not manage marketing, not manage volunteers. Those were great people, but I really wanted to see if I could be successful. If my only job responsibility was major gift fundraising, could I be successful at it? 
And so I went and worked at a, a food bank and I was the major and plan giving officer. And I don't want to sound like I'm boasting, but I blew it out of the water there. And so I realized, you know, I can do this work. It, it's all about connecting with the people, about having the conversations, finding out why they're passionate supporters. What is the impact that they ultimately want to have? And I love connecting with people. And, and to this day, it still amazes me with what people will share when they're passionate about your cause, about their personal lives, but also how they feel about your organization. And so I just I took that. I had a friend of mine who I knew from middle school that was working at the University of Louisville, my alma mater. And she said, Telly, we're hiring a major gift officer in the med school. You have to apply for it. It's a really good job. It's a senior director of development. And I thought about it and I was kind of overwhelmed. I didn't, you know, med schools are complex. Medicine is complex. I just, I thought, I don't know about this. It probably isn't going to work. But it did bring me a little bit closer to my parents. I decided to apply for it. I got it. I think my first year, my goal was a million dollars. And I raised two million within like six months. My second year, my goal was $3 million. I raised four. Um, ended up being relocated to Atlanta. Well, my partner was being relocated to Atlanta, so I started looking at other opportunities. But right when I was leaving, I got like another multi-million dollar gift, so I ended up bringing in like $6 million there before I left, and that's when I landed here at Georgia State. That's what brought us to Atlanta. And it's been kind of more of the same. It's been great. I mean, you are making it sound really easy. There are people listening <laughs> frustrated, but also intrigued, and they want to know what your secrets are. And my guess is this is a situation where uh, this is simple, but not always easy. And in our questionnaire in advance, which we don't always reference because we like to keep the conversation organic, but I have to ask you because you said if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the advancement sector, what would it be? You said the fear and hesitation that some gift officers still experience when oh. trying to make initial outreach. And it sounds like that fear and hesitation has not been something that has held you back. Why is that? And what, uh, <laughs> I mean, is I mean, how much of the success you just shared is related to just that sort of no fear, get after it mentality? Yeah, you know, I, I think I thought about this and I think it maybe has to do with like the very first time I ever fundraised for anything in my life. I was in elementary school and it sounds god awful, but we had like these crocks of cheese that we were selling for like a school fundraiser. You had to, you know, the person would place the order kind of like Girl Scout cookies and they would come in, you would deliver them. But I remember going like door to door in this rural community and people buying. Everybody like just hang on. <laughs> kind of like Girl Scout cookies, except cheese. He just snuck that in there like we weren't going to. I thought know, else to describe out, it. But, all right. Onward. And this doesn't sound like a fundraiser. It sounds like a door to door cheese salesman. But as you were, what else? <laughs> and that's kind of what I felt like. And I remember, you know, very young being kind of nervous and then. Um, you know, my dad was giving me this pep talk and he's like, don't be nervous. Like, you know, all these people, they live in the neighborhood. They'll probably do it because they like you or they like your school or whatever. And so, you know, I, I went around and I, I can't remember how much I sold, but surprisingly people bought this cheese and, you know, I delivered it when it came in and it was great. But I, I go back to that. And I think, you know, I had that hesitation, that reservation and I got through it and I have never had. And all the, the calls I've made and the connections I've made, I've had people who want to talk and want to be heard, who 
maybe complain because their past experience didn't go how they wanted, or they don't like the way that you're doing something. They want to change it. But I've never had anybody cuss me out or throw me out of their house or get up and walk out of the, the restaurant in the middle of a conversation. So I kind of fall back on that too. It's just, I haven't had the the negative experience to give me that pause. Um, it is hard work. I mean, it's, you know, you, you have to make so many calls just to get somebody who wants to talk to you. And then from there trying to get the meeting, it is really difficult work and it's taxing. Um, but I think whenever I talk to people who are new fundraisers, I always say, I think that the, one of the things that's going to help you be successful early on is having tenacity to be able to jump back on the phone and keep trying to get in front of people. And if you can do those things, it'll help you. I, I picked up a little bit on that in the med school. I was fundraising for them. Um, I remember thinking one day, if, if this doctor isn't calling me and they have an office, I think pharmaceutical reps can walk in there and get a visit. Why can't I? And so I started doing it and it, and it worked. I had, I was staring at a, staying at an Airbnb in New Orleans and I had a donor who I realized lived around the block and would never follow up with me, would never pick up the phone, call me or anything. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to walk down to his house. And so I went down there and it just so happened his wife was pulled up in the, the front of the house. This is in the garden district. So pulled up right in front of the house. She's unloading her SUV, whatever she had bought that day. And I started talking to her as Dr. So-and-so is this his house. And she said, oh, he is, but he's sick with the flu. He's probably not going to want to talk to you. And she said, but I'll go in. I'll let him know you're here. He came out on his front porch and we sat and we talked for like an hour and he yeah. ended up doing like a hundred thousand dollar scholarship. But I had a friend of mine, Jason Dippenderfer, who's now the VP up at, in Buffalo. And he was saying to me one day, he's like, man, tell you, he's like, I can't tell you. Like I was telling people about your story and what you did in New Orleans. And my staff were just shocked. Like they were like, oh, I would never go to somebody's house and announce like that. But there's, I mean, I mean, you've got, <laughs> you've got cheese salesmen going door to door. You've got Cutco knives. I remember when the encyclopedia <laughs> guy would roll through Iowa back in the day. And it is fascinating the way you're describing this. And I was actually going to ask you, should we just have door to door advancement? Like, is there a space for door to door fundraising? Because the reality is for most, I mean, political fundraising, for most of the door to door businesses that still exist, security mm. systems, solar panels. There's still a whole massive market of door to door. Yeah. So those opportunities cap out at a thousand bucks, five thousand bucks, ten thousand. None of the wildly successful door to door sales companies in the world that I can think of could randomly roll through the garden district and actually have the opportunity to close a $100,000 gift. And so it does make me wonder at times, should we just be saying, look, this is the concentration. We can maybe even publicize it. You could make it a whole campaign. Hey, it's like uh -huh. door, it's donor appreciation, door to door week. We're going to be in your neighborhood knocking. I, I don't know. This it, I, People are listening saying that is crazy. Probably the reaction <laughs> of Jason's team, I know Jason uh, as well. But man, why not? If, if pharmaceutical reps are trying to reach doctors and I, one of my best friends out of college was a pharmaceutical rep and the stuff he would do, he would like, one time he, he took all of his materials, uh -huh. the trash can for this doctor, put all of his materials in the trash can, walked in to the doctor and said, I've already put it in the trash for you. And it worked. I might write that one down. <laughs> I think, you know, I, 
I think it's a great idea, actually. It's something that somebody should try to to pilot. Now, you know, there's a lot of variables in those stories. And one of the big ones is that I was dealing with doctors. And so they probably have been a little bit conditioned by the pharmaceutical reps that are coming in there that makes that work a little bit easier. Um, But I certainly, I mean, it's no different than telling somebody you're going to be in their neighborhood and, and can you meet for a coffee? You're just dropping by, as far as I'm concerned, you're just knocking on the door and saying the same thing. And the, the thing is, you know, even though that man would never like respond to emails or phone calls, he was so excited to talk. I mean, he, he looked bad. He did have the flu. That wasn't, you know, she wasn't trying to get rid of me when she said that. Um, but he was so glad to talk to me. It turned out that not only had he, but his brother had went to the, the school of medicine. His father had came to that school of medicine. There was a long family history. They, they took so much pride in it um, that, you know, he would have never shared that information had I not just shown up at the door. So I think it's a, you know, this work, you get to be creative. You get to try different things to connect with people. And, you know, you should take advantage of those opportunities. When I looked and saw that he was around the corner, I said, I have to walk over there. Well, if anybody listening wants to pilot the first ever day of knocking, where you just <laughs> knock door to door, Evertrue is happy to get involved and figure out a way to help publicize that. I don't know. Maybe there's something there. Tell me about just the the run you've had at Georgia State. I saw, uh, you know, over 50,000 students now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, during just a real period of growth. And I think Georgia State has been one of the institutions that has been, you know, big on both vision and execution, uh, mm-hmm. but that requires money. And, and you've been uh, kind of in the trenches, uh, helping drive revenue uh, by way of the, the frontline work and the frontline team leadership. Uh, and then obviously uh, in the midst of transitions have been in an interim capacity right now. But just tell me about the highlights from the experience so far, what you've learned during your time at Georgia State. It's been great. You know, and I, I when I came down here and interviewed for the job, I fell in love with the universe right off the bat. The first thing I saw was the diversity I love that. I mean, again, we're sitting right here in downtown Atlanta. So you're surrounded by this big city. Um, it reminded me a lot of my alma mater, actually. It's an urban research institution. It's diverse. Uh, shifting from a commuter school to a more regional school, um, up and coming athletics program. All of those things just really drew me in. But then when I got here and heard all of the great things that Georgia State is doing around student success, um, it's just phenomenal. We've kind of reinvented ourselves around that. And it's an area that we're really strongly recognized in. We've just launched a National Institute for Student Success about two years ago and are doing more consulting work with other institutions of higher learning that are wanting to, to replicate what we've done here. Um, it's a great place to be. I've really enjoyed it. I've been here five years, a little over five years this month. Um, originally, I, I came in, I was a director of development in the Honors College. Um, which was new at the time. I think it'd been around about maybe eight, seven years when I got here. Uh, so the young, the alumni, it, it was young. It was harder to fundraise for than a med school that's been around since the uh, 19th century. But it was um, it was rewarding work. I, I enjoyed it. Um, I was actually hired by Mike Worley, who left a month after he hired me. And then uh, he went over to, to Lander. And then Jay Khan came in in 2020, in the middle of the pandemic. And, um, you know, I think he kind of looked at what everybody was doing and, you know, people that were bringing in the money, looked at 
background experience and saw that I was probably overqualified for that position and asked me to consider stepping into an ADP role. That was the role that Mike Worley was in. Um, so when he left, it had been vacant since then, since because um, it was 2018, actually. So two years vacant, Jay asked me to step in into it. Um, I came into that position, worked well with him, um, really did some creative things while he was here and tried to streamline a lot of our, our processes to get things running more smoothly. Um, with him here, we had our three best fundraising years in Georgia State's history. I think in uh, this past year, we wrapped it up at 62 million. That was our third best year. And then two years before that, in the pandemic, we actually landed at 62 million. And then the year in the middle of that, we actually hit almost 110, which was a, you know, that was a really big, tremendous year for us. And, you know, that's a testament to a lot of innovative things that we were trying to do while he was here. We created a program called the Stateway Match, where we took some of our unrestricted funding in our foundation and agreed to match dollar for dollar some of the other gifts that people would give in support of the endowment to grow our endowment. That was a success. We went through about $5 million, I think, within six months or so. Um, it went quickly. We did a, a similar one shortly after that. Um, even before it wrapped up, actually, we saw the success and then we wanted to do something else. So we did a similar thing with planned giving, where we matched estate gifts that people were disclosing that they'd already set up. So it was success after success. We, you know, the pandemic notwithstanding, that was a, a rough time. I ended up losing both of my parents during that time as well. Um, it was a lot to to get through. But the thing about Georgia State, it's such a, a collaborative team here and it's so open and, and it's so accessible that, you know, our entire division just rallied around the new leadership and got a lot of great things done during that time. So Jay, of course, as you probably know, left in March and, and went back to work with Amy Noah in Oklahoma. And so they're both out there now. And when he left in May, that was when the president approached myself and my colleague, Tabitha Michelle, and asked us to serve as the co-interim ADPs for university advancement. And so we've been doing that since um, since May. Well, thank you. And thanks for giving Tabitha a shout out. Tell me more about her and how you all uh, divide and conquer right now. Yeah, you know, I have to give her a shout out because this role is too big for one person to do. Uh, neither one of us could be successful in it if we had this whole job on our plates. Um, but the way we're we're dividing up the work um, on the the co interim VP side of it, I have the finance and operations and our talent development teams that I'm working with, and then she has our alumni association and our IT and our CFR teams that she's working with, and that's a that's a big lift. I mean, our alumni association they stay busy this time of year with all of their events, so she's getting pulled into that football season. You know, we just started that up. She's busy with that. We're trying to migrate over to a new Salesforce product. So she's also got that on her plate. Um, in terms of me, I just worked through a, a $35 million real estate deal that fell into my lap right after Jay left. And then a foundation merger uh, with another foundation that we had created here at Georgia State a few decades ago. Uh, merge those into one portfolio, into the Georgia State University Foundation. So that's kind of what we've been doing to keep us busy and why I kind of joke, you know, sometimes it it, it feels like my ADP hat has been completely blown off my head by all this other stuff. 
So there's a little bit of balancing that we're trying to do too in our in our old roles, make sure that our teams still feel supported and that they have access to us. Well, thank you for sharing. And I'll try not to take up too much more time so you can go, get back to all that uh, important work. <laughs> Um, you know, I know you mentioned in, in, in your summary in advance as well that you do find the student stories really inspiring. I mean, what do you do when you need that jolt of, of positivity? I mean, you know, you've lived the transformational experience of higher ed from uh, mm -hmm. you know, selling cheese and sneaking the FAFSA form to everything you've shared with us here. And, and that's some version of that story uh, is being uh, written every day for thousands of your students. And oh. at the same time, when we hear things like, you know, 51,000 or or hundreds of millions or billions that we talk about. Um, sometimes the individual human stories can get lost in those those big numbers. So how do you stay connected with the student impact and ensure that your team feels that, uh, you know, to hopefully help drive them in their day-to-day -day work as well? Yeah, we have a great um, communications team here who really does a good job pushing out information. So I make sure that I sign up for all of the internal newsletters that they're sending out, but also the, you know, the different colleges, they have their own newsletters as well. So I, I try to stay on top of those. Um, our LinkedIn, every college has its own LinkedIn. The university has its LinkedIn. And there's constantly positive news stories that are coming out of there about the impact that we're having on our students. Um, one of my favorite things to do, though, is to just to walk around downtown Atlanta, because I always tell people, especially our alumni who haven't been back in a while, that Downtown Atlanta is Georgia State University and Georgia State University is downtown Atlanta. And so just by walking through some of the parks that we've recently refurbished and renovated, you get to have that exposure with the students. You get to see them out in the streets um, studying. The Honors College is actually in the same building that I'm in. And so I can still walk down to the second floor and see the students there and kind of mingle with them and check in with the deans and hear you know what they're doing and what they're working on. They've always got great stories too. So I just feel like you're kind of automatically submersed into this celebratory culture where you have to celebrate all of the great things that are happening. And they make it very easy to do that here because there are so many great stories. Well, I want to give your communications team a shout out because I actually think the level of uh, strategic use of LinkedIn for communications is very inconsistent still in this sector. Oh, mm -hmm. And you all are setting such a good standard. Anybody listening Go to Georgia State University on LinkedIn and you are going to see video. You are going to see consistency. You're going to see stories that, you know, maybe again, it's, it's more of a general communications um, uh, initiative, but but certainly you're reaching uh, a, a significant percentage of your alumni and donor community. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's just remarkable to see the level of engagement. Yeah, I think that, you know, the credit goes to Andrea Jones. She's the VP for communications and marketing. Um, and she works closely with President Blake. You know, he's been here since I think 2020. Um, and he has really tried to, to make sure that he's pushing the university out to the community, that everybody's aware of the work that we're doing. Um, I think those two combined have really helped us to do that, to share our story more broadly. I love it. Well, Telly, we're already uh, a little bit over time here. I want to be respectful and I uh, really express my gratitude for your willingness to share your story. I find it very inspiring, energizing, and I hope our audience does as well. I know you're active on LinkedIn. You've already referenced it, but if people uh, uh, liked what they heard and want to get connected to you, is that the best way to reach out? Or Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you can. I check the messages there all the time. So definitely. 
Love it. Well, thank you, Telly. And with that, I'm going to wrap up uh, today's episode with Telly McGehey, who serves as co-interim VP for University Advancement and Interim President of the Georgia State University Foundation and Associate Vice President for University Advancement. I did say it twice, Telly. Thank <laughs> you. Take care, everybody. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.